We are this morning in part three of our series called Ask Me Anything. And we're talking about just some of the big questions that people have when it comes to matters of faith and Christianity. Uh, but sometimes they're afraid to ask because, well, you just don't ask those questions in church. Well, actually, we do ask those questions in church. And in fact, we think that's a good place to ask questions about faith and, and spirituality. And if you've got questions, I want you to know that it's okay to have questions. This is a safe place to ask hard questions. Uh, this is a safe place for you to be a little skeptical and, and even have some doubt. In fact, as a pastor and a church, I believe we owe it to you uh, to do our best to help you untangle some of the nagging questions that many, as of, many of us have that just kind of lurk at the edges of our minds. And so we've been talking about some big questions like, how do we know God exists? Uh, last Sunday we talked about uh, the exclusive claims of Christianity, like Christianity is right and all the other religions of the world are wrong. Like, how does that work? Uh, next week, Pastor Ryan's going to jump into uh, one of the huge questions that I think all of us struggle with at, at one time or another in our lives is, if God is good, how can there be so much evil in the world? And then as we move towards Easter, we're going to talk about uh, more of the questions related directly to Jesus, who Jesus is, how we can know he really lived and, and said what he said. So I'm really pumped about this city uh, series. I'm pumped about the city too. But I'm pumped about this series. And this morning we're going to tackle a question that I think is super huge and important, especially for students uh, or for people that are interested in science. Uh, doesn't science disprove Christianity? And man, I love some of the songs that we were singing this morning. Megan, you did a great job just nailing some songs that just kind of talked about this theme. In fact, I could probably just close in prayer and, and should, should I close? In? Okay, I'll preach. And I'll try and get, get, get through this. But um, are science and faith incompatible? Is, is there just something about Christianity and spirituality that is irreconcilable with, with, with science? And, and how do you explain things like, you know, how we got here or the existence and the extinction of dinosaurs? And, and what about the skeletons they find of pre-human species and all that kind of stuff? A few years ago, we were in Alberta on vacation and we went to a, an area of the province called the Badlands. I mean, even, even the name sounds sinister, right? The Badlands. And we went to a, a little town called Drumheller. And, and if you've noticed, Drumheller actually has the word hell in its name. So even that is a, is a little sinister. But uh, at Drumheller, they actually have a world-class museum called the Royal Terrell Museum of Paleontology. Have anybody been there? It's a... It's, uh, it's an amazing place, I tell you. Um, it's all about dinosaurs, and they've got these incredible skeletons that they've put together of dinosaurs that they've actually found mostly in the Alberta area. And, you know, it's, it's just, it, frankly, it, it blew me away. I saw things that I had never seen or, or imagined. I read things that I just, to be honest, didn't know what to do with. Uh, you know, full disclosure, I was raised in, in, a, in a Christian home, and, um, you know, I kind of had questions about this, but frankly, my family, my church really didn't have great answers for some of this stuff, so we just kind of didn't go there, and so I really didn't know what to do with dinosaurs, and I never really kind of 
studied dinosaurs a, a whole lot, and then I went to a, a, a Christian school in, in high school, and then instead of going to university, I went to Bible college, and so a lot of those questions that people wrestle with and get confronted with, uh, I kind of skirted around. And then you go to a place like this, and you see stuff like that, and you're like, oh my goodness. Like, how does that fit in? Because when you read the Bible, you don't find anything about dinosaurs. Uh, the scientific explanation that these amazing creatures lived tens of thousands or even millions of years ago doesn't seem to jive with what the Bible says. So because of things like that, many people see this huge tension between science and the natural world that we have evidence of and Christianity. And sometimes we make the logical progression that if you become a Christian, because of that, you really can't embrace science. And if you embrace science, you really can't have a Christian faith because it seems that what the Bible says about things like creation and origins flat out contradicts what science says and what science says about origins and creation flat out contradicts what the Bible says and the Christian faith says and basically we're left with this either or situation that you either embrace the Christian faith and check your brain at the door and ignore all of the scientific community and all that they said and just kind of stick your head in the sand and go la 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 <laughs> or you choose the path of science and you kiss your faith goodbye. Now for some of us this isn't an issue. I, I get that. Um, frankly, some of us don't really care that much about it. We don't care about dinosaurs. <laughs> we, do, we don't care about the, what the science community says. And frankly, though, I think we should care a little bit more than maybe some of us do. But for some of us, this is a big issue. And so in the next 15 minutes, I'm going to answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Um, and then for the 30 minutes after that, I'm going to talk about some other stuff. Uh, just, just kidding. So let's start off with some of the things that, that uh, we've already mentioned in this series. One of them is that everybody has a belief system. I, I think that's something that we've got to kind of keep forefront in our mind, that if you're a Christian, you've got a belief system. If you're a Hindu, you've got a belief system. If you're an atheist, you've got a belief system. Now, atheists push back on that and they go, no, 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 I don't have a belief system. What I have are facts. I've got science, I've got empirical knowledge, and somehow that supposedly transcends a belief system. In fact, uh, Sam Harris, one of the leading proponents of, new, of the new atheism, says this, atheism... <laughs> And frankly, it's amazing that he could actually say this, but he says, atheism is not a philosophy, nor even a worldview. It's simply an admission of the obvious. Wow. But that's kind of their take on it. You know, they've got the facts. They're right, just the facts. And if you got the facts, you don't need anything. You don't need faith. You don't need a worldview. I mean, it's just what is. But even though Harris denies it, what he says is actually a worldview. Atheism is a belief system. It's a faith system. Agnosticism is a faith system. Uh, a faith system. A skepticism is, is a faith system. 
Just like Christianity is definitely a faith system and so is Islam and, and, and the new age or, or make your own religion up. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's all a faith system. But the reality is, is that we usually don't dig deep enough into what we believe or how we believe to understand that we're all actually living with some kind of a faith perspective. We, we just don't realize it. Uh, Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, where we've really got some good help for this series, uh, tells a story of a nurse he knows who, who was a Christian, uh, and she had been told very explicitly to leave her faith at the door of work. And so she uh, didn't say much about, about her faith, but one day they were working on a very seriously ill patient who dies on the table in front of them, and the doctor, trying to make the, the medical team feel better and the, and the family feel better, said, well, at least he's not suffering anymore. And maybe you've heard that at funerals. Uh, maybe you, you've said that. But the nurse who had been told to leave her faith at the door was thinking to herself, that's a belief system. That, that's that's a, a faith expression. I mean, how do you know he's not suffering anymore? That there's an assumption there. There's, there's a belief behind that statement. Uh, how do you know that consciousness doesn't continue? Uh, in fact, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that consciousness and, and life goes on after death. In fact, Albert Einstein, who was not a Christian, believed that there was a consciousness after you died just based on the physics now, I don't know how he figured that out with physics and, and, and numbers, but that's what he said. So, friends, everybody's got a belief system. When you say, if you die, that's it, that's a belief system. If you say, I believe in God, that's a belief system. If you say, I just believe in science, well, that's a belief system. So let's dive in and talk about some of the widely held perceptions or maybe what I would call misperceptions about Christianity and science that we just need to put on the table and, and talk about this morning. First one's this. Perception is that Christianity is inherently anti-intellectual. Christianity is inherently anti-intellectual. And frankly, like every misconception, there is a basis in reality here. Uh, there are some churches and there are some people who follow Jesus who are anti-intellectual, uh, anti-science, uh, anti-education. Um, and this stereotype is often what gets portrayed in the media. Uh, you know, the angry, redneck Christian that is not only uh, uneducated but is outrightly anti-intellectual. And I think we've probably all seen them on the news. But frankly, that, that is really just a very small representation of people who would call themselves Christians. In fact, if you look at the history of the church and right into contemporary times, there is a very deep track of great thinkers and intellectual thought that is thoroughly thoroughly Christian and grounded in a deep faith in God. In fact, did you know that the university is a Christian invention? Universities were founded uh, by the church in the 12th century. 
and higher learning and faith have always been connected. In fact, many of the great universities of the world began as Christian institutions. All the Ivy League schools in the States, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, uh, McMaster University here in Canada, Oxford University, they're, they're, they all began as, as Christian institutions. And in fact, Christianity has actually provided much of the foundation that gave birth to this whole thing that we call science. Without the Christian worldview, science doesn't happen. Because the Judeo-Christian idea is that creation is not a god. It's the creation of God. And it was created by God with order and with intention and with pattern. And this creation of God was good and it's valuable and it's worthy of study. And God has given us understanding and intelligence and wants us to think and discover and understand his good world. And it was those understandings that actually gave birth to science along with a number of other factors. But virtually every branch of modern science was pioneered by Christians who believed in God who's the creator of all things. That's just the history. And in their scientific studies, these very intelligent people who would undertake these endeavors were inspired by their biblical faith. So is Christian, Christianity in, inherently anti-intellectual? Well, what did Jesus say in, in Matthew 22? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And so Jesus is quoting an, an Old Testament portion, the, 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 the Shema, the, the foundation of, of Jewish thoughts with that comment. And then you can go to passages like Proverbs 25 where it says it's the privilege of God to conceal things and the king's privilege to discover them. You know, this understanding that the mystery of the world around us is, is like this giant puzzle that God says, hey, sort it out. Figure it out. Explore what I've done. Look into it. And so if you're coming from an agnostic or an atheistic perspective, um, I just want to challenge you not to make the perception that Christians check their brains at the door. Now, you might not agree with how they think, but you have to admit they at least think. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I think we need to be more intellectually engaged than we typically are. Because quite often we, we don't engage with these academic or scientific fields. And you know what, I, I think we, we lose some of our influence in the world because we're, we're afraid to go there. And, and I understand if you grew up in a church or a family that didn't want anything to do with science or, or education, um, it may be because your family saw that as a threat to faith. 
as a, as a threat to the Bible. And, and I get that. I, I mean, 100, 150 years ago, there was this whole movement in the educational academic world called liberalism that, that really began to cast doubt on the authenticity and, and the authority of Scripture and, and, and kind of these foundational Christian beliefs. And so the, the reaction that, that many Christians had was to kind of pull back from all of that and just kind of step away and, and, and walk away. But we need to understand that that's just a fear-based reaction. And it's not a biblical idea. We need to get past that. And so we need to engage. So Christianity is not inherently anti-intellectual. But the second perception that, or misperception that we need to talk about is that some would say science is objective, but faith is subjective. So science is all about fact, faith is all about feelings or interpretation or opinion about how you feel and think, uh, but I don't think that's true either. In fact, let me push back by talking a bit about evolution. I like how Kerry Newhoff explains it. He says this, evolution is a theory that's, of course, widely accepted, uh, that attempts to explain observable but unrepeatable data. So there's, there's data there that is observable, but the events that created that data is unrepeatable. Because evolution, what it's trying to do is explain things that we see in this current world uh, with some theories about events that nobody saw. Events like the Big Bang, uh, events like uh, the evolution of the species through natural selection that happened over millions of years. I mean, those kind of things you can't uh, just repeat in a laboratory, can you? And good science is based on repeatable data. So a science uh, or scientist does an experiment and gets a result and he does it again and he gets the same result and then somebody else does his experiment and gets the same result and they do that enough and eventually the science community goes, hmm, you know, I think we might be onto something here because we do this science experiment repeatedly and we always get this result. In fact, a, a huge issue right now in the science community is that there's a lot of actually bad science out there that's based on bad data and bad research that gets published anyway, and then people pick it up and they think it's good stuff, and, and, and you, can, you can explore that. It, it actually is a significant issue uh, here right now in, in the scientific world. But what do you do with the scientific idea that you can't observe in a laboratory and you can't repeat in an experiment? Like the Big Bang. Now I know there's the, the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. Uh, it's the largest machine in the world where, where they're doing all of these incredible experiments. It's a 27 kilometer circular tunnel uh, underneath Geneva, Switzerland, and actually part of it's even in France, that has two vacuum tubes surrounded by superconducting electromagnets that are chilled to minus 271.3 degrees Celsius. That's actually colder than outer space. And it took thousands of scientists and technicians and engineers decades to plan and to build this monstrosity. And it operates at the very boundaries of scientific knowledge, uh, doing experiments with particles and with energy. And part of their goal is to help us understand the origin of the universe and the future of the universe. 
because we can't repeat the Big Bang. That big machine is probably as close as we're going to get, at least in, in, in our lifetimes. And we need to understand that when it comes to some of this stuff, science really has more questions than answers. Uh, the universe is expanding, uh, but you can't replicate that in a lab. So uh, we've got other things that science talks about, like the Precambrian era, which is 90% of Earth history, they say. And then there's the Cambrian explosion that happened about 541 million years ago. And, and there's this sudden appearance in the fossil record of complex life forms. But you can't repeat any of that in a science lab. So what science is trying to do with evolution is explain what obs is observable but not repeatable. And when we see the universe expanding and we see this explosion in the fossil record, uh, while we see it, we can't repeat it. And because of that, we have to understand that while the data is objective, the explanation or the theory about the data really is subjective. It's open to interpretation. And in fact, when you get into the, the theories, you find that there's a lot more interpretation there than most people realize. A lot of people would say, you know, evolution is just kind of a, a closed deal. It's, it's an accepted fact. But there are many more questions about all of that than, than people really want to admit. And some of the questions I've got are this. You know, how did non-living chemicals and elements become living cells? To, to me, that's a significant question. Uh, how did living cells randomly assemble into intelligent life forms? Uh, how did blind and random chemistry create beings capable of intelligence and meaning and altruism and morality? Uh, pretty big questions that evolutionary theory uh, really has no definitive answers for. But you know what? Theology has some suggestions. So both science and faith have subjective elements. And it's not that science is objective and faith is subjective. There's objective and subjective elements in both. Here's one more huge myth or misunderstanding that I think we need to talk about when it comes to this whole issue. It's this. If I believe in science, I can't believe in God. This question of science has actually killed a lot of people's faith. They get into high school or they get into university and they run into a really smart, charismatic biology teacher or physics teacher uh, who pushes naturalistic evolution. Uh, they have some friends that start asking questions that you don't have answers for. Maybe they get on the internet and they read some stuff online or they watch some documentaries on the Knowledge Network or whatever it is. And, and we read this stuff and we see this stuff and we go, wow, the science is really compelling. And of course, one of the things that gets highlighted in so much of that is that this all happened spontaneously, accidentally, almost, randomly. 
certainly without God. And, and, and so this idea of God and this idea that we understand of creation, the creation story that we read in the Bible, just doesn't ring true any longer. But here's another thing that we don't talk often enough about. The truth is, is that science leads researchers towards faith as much as it leads them away from faith. Uh, you've probably heard that nobody in the science community believes in God, that you can't do hard science and believe in a higher power, that people who believe in God don't make good scientists. <laughs> but ironically, the data doesn't support that idea. In fact, a recent survey of scientists who are members of the American Association for the Advancement of Science shows that just over half of their scientists, about 51%, believe in some form of deity or higher power. Uh, specifically, 33% of their scientists say that they believe in a personal God. Now, that may not mean that they're necessarily Christians, but they at least understand and, and accept the idea of a personal God, and then another 18% would believe in some form of universal spirit or, or higher power. So there is a majority, about half, 51%, of scientists who actually do believe in God. Now, we need to put the caveat in there and, and say that is actually substantially lower than society as a whole. But it's false to say that scientists don't believe in God. What's even more interesting is how it breaks down in the various scientific fields. Uh, the social sciences like anthropology and sociology and psychology, uh, belief in God is lower, but, belief, uh, but in the hard sciences like physics and astronomy and, and biology, belief in God is higher. So the scientists that are looking through the telescopes or actually looking through the microscopes, a significantly higher number of them actually believe in God. Why? Because the evidence they see compels them. Alan Rex Sandage was the astronomer who succeeded uh, Edwin Hubble. Uh, you know the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, one of the, the pioneers of modern cosmology, astronomy. Uh, so Alex Rex Sandage succeeded him and uh, very highly respected cosmologist, considered the greatest uh, astronomer of his lifetime. And he said this, it's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand that Alan Rex Sandage wasn't raised as a Christian. I think he was an agnostic. But the deeper he got into science, the deeper he got into astronomy, the more he became convinced that the best way that you could explain the wonders that he saw through the telescope was to believe that there was a God. And when he was in his 50s, at the height of his scientific career, he became a follower of Jesus. Now just stop for a moment and think. What does Psalm 19 verse 1 say? The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Hmm, we sang a lot of great songs about that fact this morning. Or check out Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. 
Though uh, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. And so really they have no excuse for not knowing God. And Alan Rex Sandage would go, yeah. You see, theology actually provides the foundation for science because it says that God created and designed an ordered universe. And science provides a launching pad for theological curiosity because whether you're looking through the wonders of the universe through a telescope or the wonders of the cell of biology through a microscope or using the Large Hadron Collider to explore the minute particles of the atom, the more you begin to understand the intricate complexities of life and the incredible way that the, the universe is so finely tuned and so finely balanced, the more some people say, wow, there's, there's got to be something behind all of this or there's got to be someone behind all of this. And for many of them, certainly not all of them, but for, for many of them, the most reasonable explanation for this world, uh, for the universe, for humanity, is the worldview prevent, uh, presented by the Christian faith. So what does the Bible say about origins? Uh, specifically about science. Well, let's dive into Genesis 1 real quick, and we're going to be done real quick. Uh, you know, when the Big Bang Theory emerged, uh, people asked, you know, is this a threat to theology? And, and Pastor Dallas touched on this a, a couple of weeks ago, and when this science came out, a lot of Christians flat out said, I don't believe it. Can't believe it. But as, as Dallas explained a few weeks ago, uh, some theologians looked at this and recognized that, you know what, Christians have always believed that God pre-existed creation, before the creation of the universe, God was. The Big Bang certainly doesn't contradict that. In fact, it was the evolutionists that were thrown for a loop because they believed that the universe had always existed and now they were left with this thought that before time, before the universe, there was what? <laughs> they don't know. They, they, they can't answer that question. Question, but for thousands of years, theologians have believed that God existed before creation and created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. The Latin term is ex nihilo. Uh, and before creation, there was God. God is eternal. He's always been. And where do we get that idea from? Well, from the very first verse in the Bible. The very first words in the ancient Hebrew scripture, Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning, what? God. And friends, can, can I just throw this in? If you can get past the first four words in the Bible, everything else is detail. Really. If, if you can get past the first four words, you don't have any trouble with the fifth word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Friends, the Bible says that creation's not an accident. It's not accidental. It's intentional, and it's personal. 
And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. There's a goodness about the creation process. It wasn't just random. No, it was of excellent design and intention. And friends, that's one of the reasons why we all have this longing for good and goodness. Because that's how God created this world. And, and when our world goes sideways and there's stuff happening in our life that is not as it should be, we, we, we all have this sense that ah, it's not good and it should be good. And Pastor Ryan's going to talk more about that kind of stuff next week. But it goes on to say, then he separated the light from the darkness and God called the, day, uh, the light day and the darkness night and the evening passed and the morning came, marking the first day. And many of us read that and we go, that's wonderful. Isn't that lovely? But some of us read that and go, whoa. That's exactly why I can't believe the Bible. Because that happened in a day and a 24-hour day? And, and how is there supposed to be light before there was a sun? I mean, you read the rest of the passage, the sun doesn't get created until day four. So how do you get light? I can't believe this Bible business. And what do you do with all the science that suggests that there was literally thousands and tens of thousands and millions and millions of years that went by with all of this? And some Christians, we would push back and say, well, if that's what science says, then science is wrong. Because Genesis says God created the whole thing in seven days and that's it. And if you don't believe in a literal seven-day creation and that the earth is about 6,000 years old, then you can't be a Christian. And I think kind of underpinning that idea is they're afraid of the slippery slope that if you don't accept that literal seven-day thing, then the, the whole story of the Bible falls apart and the, the, the whole Christian worldview comes crashing down because none of it makes any sense. But there's a problem I see with that, and, and this is going to make some of you uncomfortable, so brace yourself, buck up your seatbelt. For some of you, though, this is going to be an epiphany. The problem is that we read Genesis 1, and because of the modern mindset that we bring to it, a mindset that whether we understand it or not is colored by the issues and the ideas of our age, uh, colored by the scientific world, the modern contemporary world that we live in, colored by the modern controversies of evolution and origins, we read Genesis 1 and we automatically think that it's a science document that it's talking about how God created the world, that it's a document that describes the science of creation. And so all the science that the people have come up with, we've got to somehow fit 
into that first chapter of Genesis. And because that's our interpretation, if the science doesn't fit the story of Genesis 1, then science can't be true. Because if the science is true, then the story of Genesis 1 isn't true and the whole Christian worldview comes crashing down. So you can see from that perspective, the stakes around Genesis 1 are pretty huge. And man, you go on the internet and you start searching some of this, especially what some scholars understand the word day to mean. And I mean, you, you just get sucked in to this vortex of, of very, very intense, intense debates where some people will say that that is the issue in Scripture. But here's my thought. What if we fundamentally misunderstood the point that Genesis 1 is trying to make? What if the point of the story is not really the how? What if the point of the story is really the who and the why? just happened to receive an email this week from my nephew, Dean Davis, about this exact thing, and he says it so well, I, I just want to read what he says. So, so don't blame me. This is, this is, this is Dean, okay? Um, and he's talking about the cultural context of, of Genesis. He says, Moses is widely believed to be the person who wrote down what is recorded in Genesis, and that would include the account of creation, of course. So, Moses was raised in Egypt, in the royal court as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and therefore, he would have had an excellent understanding of not just the Egyptian culture, but likely all the Middle Eastern cultures of the day. In those cultures, nature was worshipped as gods, especially the Egyptian culture where all the Israelites grew up as slaves. The god of the sun and lights being one of the highest but also including the worship of the moon and the earth and the various animals, the wind and the water, etc. Now think about all those things that are listed in Genesis and how it is that the God of the Jews brings them into order, brings them into place in his creation, and how it is that he commands them all to exist and play their role. They all get assigned their function. It's not just that this God created each one of these other things. It's also that at his command, they do what they do. And he is the one who is above all, who creates all by his voice, who gives everything its power and its momentum to be what it is. And these Israelite slaves that had been raised in this Egyptian culture, suddenly now had a new perspective, one in which these things like the sun and the moon and the stars were not gods, but were tools of the one God, the one God worthy of worship. You see, Genesis 1 isn't addressing the issue of evolution. It's addressing the issue of polytheism. And, and, and pantheism, the ancient peoples, they, they didn't think about creation 
in materialistic terms at all, that that wasn't their question. They, they wouldn't even understand the issue or the concern because that wasn't something that was even in the remotest corner of their consciousness. What Genesis 1 is addressing is actually a profound revelation of who the God of heaven really is and that this one God created the heavens and the earth. So here's what we need to understand, and this is where we're going to close because we'd all like to go home and shovel. <laughs> For thousands of years, Christians have had very different interpretations about how God created the earth. And friends, these are very sincere Christians who hold to an extremely high view of Scripture. And some will say that the earth is 6,000 years old. Some will say, no, it's 10,000 years old. And yes, there's even sincere Christians who love Jesus that say it's 13 billion years old. What do we do with that? Well, we understand what the core is. The core of the issue is who. The how is interpretation. And you can agree or you can disagree. And if you're a person who looks at the scientific evidence and says, hey, you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me that the universe is 13 billion years old. The good news is that you can still be a Christian. You can still be a follower of Jesus because, friends, the real issue isn't how. The real issue is who and why. And in fact, many of the scientists that we would look to, especially in the area of intelligent design and the research that they've done, they're saying, no, this, this science, this stuff, the human eye, the, the way the cell is put together, the, the way life began, it is evidence of intelligent design. Many of those scientists would not be young earth creationists. But they believe in Jesus. So frankly, myself, I just think it's going to be really cool when we get to heaven and learn how God actually did it. <laughs> Kerry Newhoff puts it like this. Even if everything science says in evolution about the origin of the universe and biology is accurate, none of it fatally defeats the existence of God. None of it defeats the truth of the Bible. None of it defeats the teaching that God is the creator. So does science disprove Christianity? Not a chance. Does science actually lead us to God? Absolutely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know right now some of our, our heads are spinning a little bit. For those of us at least that were able to stay focused. Because <laughs> some of this just, just seems to be kind of so overwhelming and, and beyond us. But Lord, I pray right now that, again, the glory of the world around us, that it would so stir in our hearts a fresh revelation and appreciation for the glorious God that we serve. God, even today as we walk outside and we look at the beauty of a world transformed by freshly falling snow, 
May we worship you as the glorious creator who made all things good. Amen. Amen. Thanks for showing up, folks. God bless you.